0: This is
1: a Saltile Media original podcast. Hello, welcome to the Ireland podcast. This is Fender Jackson. This is the second part of a two-part conversation I had with Breach Rogers, which was recorded on the afternoon of Saturday, the 21st of October, 2023. You can catch the first part of this interview on your podcast player or on salthillmedia.com. Breach's ambitions for this interview are, and I quote, I hope it contributes to stopping the rewriting of history. And quote. Neil deGrasse Tyson, the astrophysicist, talks about there being three different types of truths. Those are personal, political and and objective truths the personal truth is something that you believe in for example paul brady is the greatest songwriter ever to have come out of straban in 1947. political truths could be those shaped through tradition culture or over repetitions and time for instance santa comes On the early hours of Christmas Day. But in Austria, it's Christkind, or baby Jesus, that comes on the night of Christmas Eve. And Christkind is an infant girl. Don't worry about Austria. They also have Krampus. Look that up. K-R-A-M-P-U-S Then there's the objective truth. The kind of truth that exists no matter what your personal or political truths are. One plus one equals two. The whole of the UK did vote to leave the European Union. Turkeys do not vote for Christmas. Except for those times when, of course, that they do. If Breach's concern is that history is, in fact, being rewritten then I guess we owe it to her to listen to this conversation with an open mind and then to do some fact-checking if we need to and then to draw our own conclusions. There's a lovely saying, which is She who tells the truth will sooner or later be found out. Breed started out the chat on episode 6 stating her 88 years of age. It's great to hear her being so lucid. In fact, my father was surprised to learn that she had no notes in front of her. And he's only 84. OK, let's go straight to the rest of that conversation. Band. Please stop. This is the Ireland podcast. Can you please summarise Sunningdale?
0: Well, Sunningdale was a huge advance in Northern Ireland because it it was unbelievable that it had been achieved and it was, you know, very early days of the STLP, they weren't long formed. And I was only, I suppose, a minnow in the party at that time. And uh, I have to say that the Sunningdale Agreement was such a breakthrough. I, I we couldn't believe it. I, I could not believe that we'd actually achieved it. Or that it, the British had agreed to it because you know we were going to get an All Ireland Council, uh, which actually would have uh, jurisdiction over the police as well as everything else, and we were going to have power sharing, uh, in in Stormont and Government in Stormont, and it was just a whole new world. It was what it, it was the principles that we had always worked for, and I remember thinking this is nearly too good to be true, and then of course. Uh, It was too good to be true, because first of all, the unionists, all of the unionists completely opposed it, went mad. Uh, Sinn Féin and the IRA opposed it. They didn't accept it. And they continued their violence, which of course was the which, of course, made the case for the for the unionists who are opposing it. So you can't please these people, you know.
1: What was the grounds for them opposing
0: it? It wasn't a new Ireland. It wasn't a united Ireland. It wasn't enough for them. They hadn't enough. They weren't in for... They, it was the SDLP policy of power sharing within the north with an all-Ireland dimension, a Council of Ireland, which, of course, was, I suppose, if Michael Collins would have called a stepping stone, and they didn't agree with that because for to, for them it was all or nothing. It was too much of a compromise, I presume, but they, they opposed it. And the IRA did not stop. They kept going. And, of course, that convinced the unionist community, which were not very hard to convince because they were, I suppose, it was in their DNA, but that certainly, if I had been a unionist, that convinced them, look, They've got everything they want for. They've got power sharing. They've got an an All-Ireland Council and they're still not happy. So they're still continuing the terror. So it was a disaster uh, what happened. So the Loyalists were up in arms. Uh, The Unionists opposed to it. They had rallies against it. Um, The IRA continued their war. And then we had the Loyalist strikes and the whole thing fell apart and the British just caved in. Um, so,
1: talk a little bit about the loyalist strikes because not many people will be able to remember this or know about it.
0: Yeah. Well, the loyalist strike was when the loyalists uh, had a strike all over the north. That did it, what what you would expect trade unions to be doing, but they did it, you know, against Sunningdale and against the, the constitutional situation that we were facing. And there the were strikes all over the north. Everything was closing down. Uh, the, the power stations were closing down. Uh, we were going to run out of fuel. Uh, there was, I think, a little bit like Gaza at the moment, if you like. Uh, everything was closing down, and uh, they just all down tools. They weren't going to work, and that was it. And it was very successful from their point of view because and then they had very good propagandists, some of them who actually were on the BBC, uh, people who were in charge of the power stations, you know, explaining what was going on and prophets of doom. Absolutely. It was awful listening to it. And I remember at the time it was very, very dangerous time for us, uh, having been involved in civil rights and particularly in, in politics. And I remember, um, I, you couldn't, we had, we had no fuel for the cars, really. And I remember we had an STLP meeting in Lurgan, organised, I think, Michael Canavan, who was one of our main people at the time, was coming to address it. And I was going into it, but I couldn't take, I was a mile into the town, so I had to walk in because I was spare, keeping the petrol in the car in case we had to do a quick flit. And I remember when things were getting really bad and the roads were blockaded. Uh, you couldn't get from A to B. The the loyalists were blockading all the roads. That's right, yeah. And um, my... It was just... It was awful. And I remember thinking, well, at least I have the car full of petrol and if, if things get really bad and we're under threat, I can head for Donegal. And then it got so bad that there was a blockage at the bottom of my road. And I thought, fuel's no good to me now, I can't get out. So we were actually blocked in, and it was very frightening. It really was very frightening. And um, people have no idea what it was like living. I'm just thinking about it myself. I had young children. I was living kind of outside the town, and. I was a mile from the centre of the town, but I lived on, the road I lived on, you know, there was only two ways out of it. You had to go up through the Loyalist area of the town or you could go down towards what was known as the Catholic area of the town. And it was blocked off, but there was no way I would have got up the other way because I would have been hijacked. So it was a terrible, terrible time. And it it only ended when 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 Sunningdale fell actually when the British government sort
1: of caved in I've had hundreds of checkpoints in my childhood and there's two that I recall very vividly mm. one was around the time of Sunningdale mm. was um, yeah it was just, well it wasn't really a checkpoint it was more blockade and yeah, you know, we couldn't yeah. pass and we'd already travelled all around the houses yes. to find some way to get that home you could get through yeah. and then this uh, chosen um, route that we had gone down uh, it was blockaded and then the other one that I can re- recall was an IRA checkpoint yeah. in yeah. Derry yeah. so they thought well, it was good enough for the Brits to come over here and do, you know, mm. ask for ID yeah. and where yeah. you're going to yeah. and is this car yours mm. let's do it ourselves and I remember my father turned around to us all and say, kids be quiet you know, <laughs> and he didn't often say that, but we knew whenever he did. Okay, yeah, say, this is say nothing. This is a command. Okay, well, whatever
0: you say say nothing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so, funnily enough, yeah. I remember being at an STLP meeting in during Do you remember that the, the Paisley set up a sort of a militia, a, a third force to defend Ulster. You know, an illegal force, of course. They weren't the police. And they they set up roadblocks and they were stopping people. And I had been, we we, we used to have our SDLP meetings in Dungannon. And I'd been at a meeting in Dungannon and I was coming home and when I came up to the roundabout, I had my papers sitting, you know, in the seat beside me and I was stopped by the militia. And they said, what's your name? And I said, Roger Seddon, said Breed. Uh, where are you coming from? I said I was visiting friends in Dungannon. Where are you going? I'm going back home to Lurgan. And they looked at me and they looked into the car. That's okay, go on. I was frightened. I thought if they recognise me, I'm done for, you know. But I didn't say Breach Rogers. <laughs> I know to say Rogers. <sighs> but that, that was a frightening experience. It really was. And that's what you were up against, you know, because they were stopping people... I remember my daughter was, at that time, she was staying with us. She just got married and she had only one child, I think, and they were staying with us for a few months because she had, her husband was working in Dublin too, and she had two kids, the two younger ones. And I remember thinking, God, this is getting very bad. And I said, you know, Anne, I think you should just go to Donegal. And I said... I hope you don't run into any roadblocks. And she did, she put the kids in a car and she headed for Donegal during the day and she had to go round the world for sport. She kept being stopped everywhere and had to go a different way, but she eventually got there. But that's the way it was. I mean, you couldn't travel around. And it was a bit frightening, but I suppose she had two children. She was a woman and she looked pretty innocuous, you know. They were supposed to be after the IRA, she obviously wouldn't be in that category, but it was frightening. I was frightened for us because of our position and I thought, I mean, they're going to get it if we get it, you know. And um, she got to Donegal anyway in one piece.
1: (laughs) So, you're recalling that moment in the car and the papers and all the rest. Is that the most frightened you've ever been in Northern Ireland? Or in your career? Uh,
0: No. Well, I was quite frightened. You know, you get, it's an awful thing, you get used to it. You always think it's not going to happen to you. And even when, even when things were bad, and uh, I was in Portadown, and I remember a bomb went off in Portadown, and that was when I was in the Assembly. And I went down, you know, it was an IRA bomb, and I went down, and I was in the middle of the town, and the guys who were shouting at me, I knew who they were. They were loyalist paramilitaries. And but I always thought, well, they're not going to do anything when all these people are around, you know. But I suppose it was kind of frightening. I remember one night, the police came and told me at one stage that I was under threat from the Portadown Loyalists and that I should watch my roots in and out of the house and everything. And I said, there's only two ways into this house. You come down the road from the Loyalist area, you come up the road from the other area, there's no other way. And they said, well, we're just telling you, you need to be careful. Because they had some information. It was Billy Wright's crowd. And he was the loyalist leader, you know. And I was a bit frightened then. I remember one night waking up and I could thought I heard footsteps around the house. And I thought, oh my God. And you know what I did? <laughs> I put my head out the window and I said, who's that? And I heard this voice saying, it's only us, mate, having a look around. It was the soldiers. And they must have been told to keep an eye on it. Wow. But <laughs> what a stupid thing. I was so frightened I didn't know what I was doing. But I <laughs> head out the window. With that. They were walking around the house and going on down to the field. Why do you think I was stupid? Because if I I was making if, if it was someone coming to get me, sure I was giving them a oh, yeah. target. <laughs>
1: I'm more stupid than you, so, yeah, so uh, it takes me a while to, you have to so spell
0: it. So anyway, um, but there were times when it was, you thought about it and then you put it out of your mind. and you, you always think it's not going to happen to you, just, but there were frightening times and roadblocks were particularly frightening. You didn't want to run into them, especially if they recognised you, you know.
1: Did they ever recognize you?
0: Well, no. I, I, well, it would be at night. You see, during the day, you wouldn't be stopped. Really, you would be mm. stopped during the day. But we uh, were stopped
1: during the day. Well, yeah, the oh, yeah, head, the blockade was. Happening. Oh, we
0: were blocked during the second Loyalist strike. I was bringing my uh, my son was at school in St. Coleman's in Newry. and of course, when we arrived, when I brought him into the bus in the morning, the buses were on strike. There was no buses. The mm. dr- bus drivers weren't allowed to drive the buses. And there was himself and a teacher and someone else who, who worked in St. Coleman's, And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'll i bring you. So we got into the car and we drove to, um, we were going round to get to Newry in a roundabout way to um, Scarva. And when we came to Scarva, there was a big bonfire on the bridge at Scarva. You had to get over the bridge. And these guys stopped the car and they said, where are you going? I said, bring these people to school where you're not going anywhere. And I said, but well, I heard your leaders on this morning saying that there was going to be no intimidation and they said, it doesn't matter. You're not, go- you're not effing going anywhere. So I turned back and I went to Banbridge and then I went from Banbridge towards Newry and the next thing was another roadblock. And we were just told we couldn't go any further and we sat and, and the police were there and they weren't shifting them. Nothing was happening. And there we were and um, we sat and the police said, well, you know, we don't want to cause a riot and we can't do anything. And I think we were there for about a half an hour and eventually they dispersed. Jim Wells, who's a DUP assemblyman subsequently, he was there in the middle of them and I went over to him and I said, excuse me, Jim, I said, but, you know, is this not the Queen's Highway, as you call it? And he said, just did that, so... They eventually let us through. It took me, I think, about two and a half hours to get to Newry that day, which is really normally 40 minutes, 35 minutes. But by the time we came back, we didn't get there till about 12 o'clock. But when we were coming back, the roads were cleared, so we had, I had no problem coming back. But it was... That's just the way it was, you know?
1: Did, did you ever carry a gun or were you ever suggested to carry a no, gun? No,
0: Never. And we're, we're, I wouldn't have carried it anyway because I wouldn't have known what to do with it. John Hume never carried a gun either. Did, uh, pe- did
1: people suggest you to carry a gun? No,
0: on? no, it was never. They just told me... Actually, when, when I was told by the police to be careful, uh, I was frightened and I... I knew I was entitled to some kind of protection around the house, but I didn't have any. And I wondered why they weren't giving me any protection, you know. And I rang Dublin... And I said, look, I have been told I'm under threat, but I have no protection and they're not giving me any protection. And within a week, they were out to me and they put lights around the house. Who's they? The, the Northern Ireland office. Okay. Came out. They put uh, lights around the house that if anyone came, you know, the light went on everywhere around the house. They gave me a buzzer, which I mean, I alerted the police if I had any, if I was anything happened, I just pressed the buzzer and the police would be there. And um, they offered to put in bulletproof windows. And I had just had new windows put in. And I said, oh, God. Well, they said, we can put a film on the window, which means that they wouldn't be able to, a bullet wouldn't go through it, you know. Well, I said, do that. And they put the film on the window and they gave me a new front door, which was bulletproof. Uh, and uh, that was okay. The windows were kind of bulletproof, and the front door was... They gave me a new front door, which was bulletproof. And that was there for quite a while and never had to use it, thankfully. But anyway, um, that, that was all around my house at the time. And <laughs> the thing about it is when everything settled down, I discovered that the film they had put on the windows outside, the windows... Hadn't been cleaned obviously, just before it, and they had all the grit in the window. Oh, no! <laughs> so anyway, they had to take it off. <laughs> and did they put it back up again? No, no. At that stage, things were that's it. But just long after that, when things had settled down a bit, that I, they didn't feel there was still the same threat.
1: Yeah. Okay, so let's go into the Good Friday Agreement now. So. Hume Adams talks and all the rest. And uh, Hume had a reputation for, of doing solo runs. So solo runs where he didn't yeah. consult with yeah. the party yeah. and or, yeah. or many people. Um, did he actually include you and or others in his plans?
0: No, I don't think John really included. I, John kept... Do you know this? I know it would have been impossible for John to keep the lid on it. It would have got out. No matter what, there would be always somebody who'd want to, you know, to just tell what was going on. He just didn't trust. He didn't trust. He he knew it had to be kept very quiet and very secret because if it got out, it would you know be very difficult to carry on. And he didn't talk. I I know when it when we discovered that he had actually. Um, been talking to Jerry Adams, I woke up on Sunday morning and it was all over the papers that John Hume had been seen, or Adams had been seen coming out of Hume's house, it was Eamon McCann that spilt the beans and um, we were shocked because we didn't know that he was talking to the to, to the IRA as it was actually, and um, I was shocked I rang him and He was starting to explain it to me and I was was so angry at the idea that this was going on behind our backs that I put the phone down on him. (laughs) And 10 minutes later, he rang me back and he says, listen to me. So he told me exactly what he was doing, why he was doing it and why it was necessary to sort of keep it, you know, to himself more or less. And I accepted the logic of what he was saying. and I was,
1: There and then on a call. I
0: said, yeah, that's fine, John, I agree. But I said it was a bit of a shock.
1: So were you hanging up because he was talking to the IRA or because he didn't include you in the plans?
0: No, because he was talking to the IRA. I thought, I thought this was outrageous because people forget they were calling us the Stoop Down Low Party. They were publicly still attacking us. And, you know, it was kind of... Hard to get your head around the fact that while they were still attacking us, that this was going on, and it just as reflex action I rang him, but I suppose it was very much a reflex action. But anyway, it sorted out within half an hour. with a half an hour's talk or whatever it was, and that was that.
1: Can you explain the relationship between Hume and Seamus Mallon?
0: It was a very funny relationship. <laughs> it was there were two different people. I mean, Seamus was, uh, to explain a bit of the difference between them, I remember John coming down to canvass for Seamus when he was running in Armagh. I was in, we were in Seamus's constituency at that stage before they redrew the boundaries. And John was down canvassing for Seamus in a Westminster election. And um, Seamus had, you know, they had badges, sport the SDLP, orange and white badges. Seamus it's the SDLP colours are green and red. Seamus looked at him and said, that's the Armagh colours. You know, John, they were two different people. Uh, They were both, Seamus was very good with people and grassroots and that. And John was up to a point, but John was very good at persuading people and getting people to believe in his ideas. And um, he wasn't as close in many ways to the, he was close to Derry, but Seamus was a rural sort of, There were two different they represented, in a sense, two different constituencies and they, they were both on the same track, but there was, I suppose, it was a wee bit of jealousy, maybe, and you know, um, you know, I mean, Seamus knew that John was really always the leader, you know, and I suppose it was kind of hard for him to take, but... Uh, they, they, they knew they got. You know, it was a lot made of the fact that there were. Uh, Sinn Fein made a lot of the fact that Seamus seemed to be against the, him talking to Adams and all that. Seamus was very suspicious, as we all were, of what they were up to. You know, were they using him? Were they uh, just using Hume? As, and which I think, to a certain extent, they did, because eventually, um, it used to be they used to talk about the Hume Adams. And then they began to talk about the Adams Hume. Yeah, it was a small distinction, but I think they were aware of the fact that uh, that they could gain politically from what was happening, and that it could damage the SDLP. But John was bent on getting the peace, getting the stop the killing, and he was right, you know. It's very... He was right. I, I I. think it would have gone on because it was... The British weren't going to win and the IRA weren't going to win, but people were going to be killed still in the meantime, you know.
1: I'm picking up on the word, as you said, jealousy. So jealousy between them, and it's obvious that there could be jealousy from Seamus to John because... It John might have Leah- been.
0: I'm. It's not fair for me to say that, but there's bound to have been uh, yeah, human yeah. beings, you know.
1: Absolutely. But... So it's a strong word for want of a better word. Could there have be been a desire of a situation where John's looking at Seamus and looking at his life? And what would what would jo- what would Seamus have had in his life that John would have wanted?
0: Well, I think Seamus probably... Um, I don't know. Se- Seamus, John was a very... Uh, driven individual I don't think John looked at anyone else wondering what John was just a one track mind he was going to do what he was going to do and he knew where he he wanted to go and how to get there and I don't think he would have been upset by how other people were seen I really don't think he would Uh, he might have I don't know you couldn't describe the relationship between them it was good and it was bad at times they were kind of I think Seamus was a foil at times for John because, you know, we would have very, very fraught party meetings uh, of the representatives, and um, John always came in, this with his proposal, and then there'd be a big argument about it and to and fro and everything. And but sometimes there was there were disagreements, you know, the way we were going. But eventually, John would write a statement, and then the statement would be analysed and then there would be changes made to it, you know, to suit the other speakers. But eventually John got his way, you know. But they always had to go through the the, the devil's advocate with him, which was good, you know. Because there could have been times when John might not have realised the sensitivities of nationalists in areas like where I lived and where Seamus lived. Like he was in Derry. It was a kind of a bubble mm-hmm, yeah. in many ways. And it probably must have been hard for him to see what it was like for the people who were out in the sticks. Mm -hmm. And Seamus could see that.
1: He was in the heart of it.
0: He was in the heart of that. He lived in a terrible area. I mean, he was, at the time, he he couldn't get out of his house, you know. They were surrounded. Mm -hmm. uh, And, you know.
1: Surrounded by whom?
0: By a unionist population. He was in the middle of a unionist area. They protesting. No, just not so much protesting, but, I mean, everywhere around him was Unionist, and mm. there were protests at times, and there was times that there were... I think he was blocked into his house, oh. and they wouldn't let him out, you know.
1: And he lives in a corner.
0: He does. He lived he lived up a lane in a bungalow, and, you know, it was... Mm. He, he was a different situation. I mean, John was, a, John was attacked in the bog side more, maybe, you would say by Republican elements than he was by Loyalist elements, Mm -hmm. because his house was attacked numerous times, not by Loyalists, but by Republican supporters. It was petrol-bombed, stoned, uh, threatened, not by Loyalists, but mostly by, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was an experience that John had a lot of. Uh, Seamus would have had an experience of being, I suppose, threatened more from the loyalist community
1: so talk to me about your role in the good friday agreement what did you do what were your responsibilities
0: well i was the chair of the group the the, i I, the main negotiators were mark durkin uh sean Farn, john and seamus they were the key negotiators we were i was involved in some of the meetings with with um, Mitchell and people like that about on various issues, but on the whole, the key negotiations were carried out by Seamus in particular and Mark Durkin and John and Seamus. They were the, the key negotiators. But, but I was the chair of the group so that every time when anything was happening we had a meeting of the group and I was the chair of it, so we they explained what was going on and took our views and all of that and Uh, just we were kept in the loop all along we knew exactly what was happening Um, I think in the SDLP we didn't have we didn't have the problems that Trimble had certainly and probably maybe not the problems that Adams had with the IRA you know because they were always afraid of a sellout too Uh, he had to bring he had to to bring Sinn Féin with him or he was very careful, of course, he never overstepped it. Didn't have the same problems, really, as because he was always seen by his supporters as on the winning side, on the side of, you know, being in there, doing things. I think the most difficult job was Trimble's because he was being attacked on all sides. We were not being attacked by the nationalist community because Hume had the complete confidence of the nationalist community and... Uh, you know, we weren't very sure ground, really. Um, We just wanted to make... We had to make sure that we... When the Assembly was being negotiated, uh, what the Assembly would be... How it would be constituted, Sinn Féin didn't participate in those negotiations because they didn't believe in a Northern Ireland state. So they refused to get involved. So the negotiation about the Northern Ireland Assembly was just between us and the Unionists, really, Uh, because that was the Northern Ireland end of it and of course the Irish government and the British government were involved too but it was basically we had to get agreement with the unionists and the unionists were trying to water down the north-south bodies they didn't want them to have any real impact or say and they wanted to have very few, we wanted to have more of them, they wanted to water them down to have as minimal as possible and that was a great difficulty because they were really digging their heels in. They didn't want another Sunningdale. They didn't want a situation where they were setting up a power-sharing executive. And we had to have a power-sharing executive. We couldn't have anything else. So they were very difficult negotiations. And that's why on the morning that Seamus came down at two or three in the morning to tell us that they had cracked it, that they'd got an agreement, that was the morning... Must have been a Good Friday morning. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It's the morning of Good Friday. Three in the morning. And gosh, I was I thought this is wonderful. Actually I hugged Seamus and it was seen on the you know, the, the reporters outside saw this hug and they knew something was happening. We didn't realise the blinds were open. Anyway, um and we knew then that we had broken the back of it, you know, but there still was a lot the prisoners' issue and things that were for Adams and them, and of course Trimble, Trimble's issues with going into power sharing with Adams and all that. You know, that was, the, that was they were the huge issues for them. But they had agreed. They had agreed the power sharing administration, which would obviously was going to involve Sinn Fein. And, you know, that was a big breakthrough as far as we were concerned. And after that, really, there was phone calls from from Clinton and from everyone was getting involved and Bertie was talking to Clinton and Clinton was talking to Adams and talking to everyone during the night. And it was very fraught. And then in the morning, we thought actually then in the morning that we had got agreement that it was... And then suddenly everything went haywire because Trimble had had a meeting and things were going bad and we were told it wasn't going to happen. And I really thought at that stage, at about ten o'clock in the morning, it's all going to fall apart, And I was devastated. So we are on tenterhooks then till three o'clock when word came through that Trimble was prepared to sign. And the relief I couldn't describe it. So Mitchell immediately got everyone round the table and signed before <laughs> before anyone had changed before anyone could change their mind. And then, when the whole thing... It was such, My son was... Uh, he was a dentist. He was working in Belfast at the time. And I had a few people. We'd asked a few... he I had asked him to come up to Stormont. And he was there, actually, on the day. And... It was... I can't describe it. But I'll tell you what. We had been up for two nights in a row. We were staying in the Stormont Hotel. And we had we hadn't been to bed for two nights. We were sleeping in chairs and everything. And... When the whole thing was over that evening, my family in Lurgan, it was Easter, and my husband and the rest of them, they had gone to Donegal, because we all went to Donegal for Easter. And I was so tired. I couldn't even drive home to Lurgan. I drove to the Wellington Park Hotel and booked myself in, and stayed the night on my own in the Welly Park. Got up in the morning, had no breakfast, went straight to Lurgan, threw a few things into a case... And drove to Donegal. And I, <laughs> It's a funny story. I was stopped on the dual carriage by going into Letterkenny by the police. I must have been over the, whatever it was. And they stopped me. I thought, that's all I need. <laughs> and they looked at me. It's all right, go on. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I went on. And, you know, when I got to my house in Donegal, in Bunbeg, to Gwidoor, I went in the door and I broke down. I cried my eyes out. That just only hit me then that what we had achieved, that we'd worked for three decades and that suddenly all the other parties had agreed to it, the Unionists and, and, and Sinn Féin and everything, who had opposed everything John Hume was standing for from the beginning. And it just, it was the emotion... I couldn't believe it. i I just that was when it hit me really, and after that it was <laughs> all right.
1: What happened between ten a m and three p m on Good Friday that Trimble changes changed his mind?
0: well, I think uh, I, I think the note uh, um, Blair gave him a note to say it was decommissioning was a big issue because there was not a commitment. there was a commitment to try and get it, but not to actually decommission. The commitment was very... I think it was a mistake at the time. Maybe it could have saved Trimble. The commitment by Sinn Féin was that they would... I can't remember the actual words, that they would um, do everything in their power to achieve decommissioning or something along those lines, but they didn't say the IRA had agreed to decommission at Mm -hmm. that stage. So that was the stumbling block. And Blair sent a note to Trimble... Uh, the early hours the morning whatever time it was in which he said that if the IRA didn't decommission within a certain length of time that he would put them out of the Assembly which of course he didn't do
1: and did uh, Clinton phone Trimble as well in the meantime
0: oh Clinton had phoned him during the night yeah and had phoned Adams during the night trying to get something on the decommissioning but uh, I think what swung it in the end was the note the written handwritten note from Blair Mm. To Trimble, giving him a commitment.
1: So you're in your home in Guido, you've had this outburst of emotion. Was there a fear there that you actually, this might still fall apart?
0: No, no, no. I, I kind of knew. I knew at that stage that Trimble had taken the plunge, there was no going back, you know. It, I, I knew it was courageous what he did, and it was extremely difficult without decommissioning, you know, without a commitment mm. to decommission. That was the biggest thing. And the prisoners getting out was another thing, but that affected all communities. But it, the dec- you think of how difficult it was to agree that they would go into power sharing with Sinn Féin and that the IRA still were holding their arms. That was a big, big mm. issue for Trimble. So, I, no, I didn't think that time it would fall apart. It, there were difficulties in the initial stages, definitely, and the difficulties were still over decommissioning. And I did begin to fear in the early months that decommissioning would bring the whole thing down around us because I knew that Trimble was losing the unionist community. They were losing faith in Trimble. They were losing faith in the agreement that they'd voted for. And that was a very, very tense period. Uh, then, of course, the whole thing collapsed, as you know. And... Um, was collapsed for quite a while, but well, it collapsed once and came back. Mm-hmm. When Trimble said uh, said to Adams, "I've jumped, you jump now," but Adams didn't jump. So I have to say, during the during the twenty fifth anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, I heard Jerry Adams in one of his interviews saying that, well, he didn't quite realise the difficulties that Trimble was facing, and I thought to myself. What a statement. Where did he think Trimble was coming from? Did he not realise? We had been to South Africa and we'd met Mandela. And one of the things Mandela said to us, which stuck in my mind ever since, was in any negotiation, you must put yourself in the shoes of your opponent and think of what they need that you can give them what it is they absolutely must have that they can't move without and that you can make that move possible for them. And that had always struck in my mind. And I thought to myself, they had to know how difficult it was for Trimble. I mean, it was a huge ask. It was quite patronising, you know. We didn't quite realise how tough it was for Trimble. I mean, where were they coming from? You know, of course they knew. They knew well. They didn't care. They were only they were focused just on their own needs. They didn't really make make a move that would have made it in any way easier for Trimble.
1: As a young man, so I was 25 whenever mm. the Good Friday Agreement was delivered, and in my mind, I always saw Trimble through the prism of the triumphant guy walking hand-in-hand yeah. hand yeah. down yeah. the Garvahi Road yeah. with uh, Paisley. And whenever he was given the... Nobel Peace Prize, I was thinking well, they just kind of want to give it to Hume Yeah,
0: people thought that, but actually he deserved But the thing is,
1: now that he's passed and we're able to look back and then uh, his whole life has been reframed through his passing, unfortunately because he was a hero He
0: He was a hate figure within the nationalist community. Yes. And the fact of the matter is as I said, without Hume there would have been no Good Friday Agreement because he created the whole foundation, he persuaded enough people to to bring them to that view. But without Trimble, it would not have been signed. Yes. It would have fallen. So the two of them were essential to it. Mm-hmm. Hume in the sense that he did all the donkey work over the years with America, with Britain, with everyone, persuading people about, you know, the way things should be. And got to, his principles were actually, were the foundation of the Good Friday Agreement, the principles he'd always enunciated. That's where it came from. And Trimble was converted to that in a sense, but the difficulty with decommissioning was something he couldn't couldn't deliver. and he knew that, but he did it anyway, and the seat it was signed and so he he played as big a part in the end in the Good Friday Agreement, although it was it was a just a heroic thing he had to do.
1: But it was still necessary.
0: It was necessary. It wouldn't have happened without him. It would never have happened if Trimble had gone off and said, "No, I'm not signing." That would have been the end. And then, the, what would have happened? We'd been back to square one.
1: It's almost like two opponents trying to play a game of chess where both of them win. Yeah,
0: yeah, uh, yeah. Well, it, and you know, even looking back on it, yeah, he did deserve the Nobel Peace Prize for 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 be, being able to bring the Unionist community that far. And for actually standing up with you, you know, the Bono Concert, where the two of them were together. And that 71% of the people of Northern Ireland voted for it. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of unionists in that. Were you surprised?
1: Do you think the number is high?
0: I I didn't think it would be that high. I was hoping, but I don't think anyone... We were hoping it would be high, but... Uh, well, of course, the Catholics were out in droves, you know. There was a big Catholic vote, but still, there had to be a big unionist vote, a fairly substantial unionist vote in that too. Mm-hmm. And then they lost heart. In what way? Well, they, they, they lost heart because of decommissioning. You know, decommissioning, how long did it take? Shouldn't fi- IRA only decommissioned when the Americans turned on them, when they realised they were going to lose the support of Ted Kennedy. You know, there's times fold them, and a t- there's a the time to hold them, and a time to fold them. Remember, he said mm, that. Yeah, uh, that was after 9-11. That's right. Yeah, when the when the Americans realized themselves what the issue, how, how important the issue was, and when they were getting tired of Sinn Féin prevar- or the IRA prevaricating, and it was put up to them, and they realized they were going to lose America if they didn't, and that's why they did it.
1: I mean, that's that's the thing that keeps going around in my mind, how political parties put the party before the good of their people mm. so many times, yeah. and Hume didn't. You know, he was the antithesis of that. He he was looking at the people and putting the people before the yeah. good of his party. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: And parties only make moves whenever they're backed into the corner. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: So do you think more could have been done to make, I mean, there's an the argument that SDLP are less relevant today because Sinn Féin don't yeah. uh, are no longer. You know, Sinn Féin
0: could. have taken over. Our they're wearing our clothes, <laughs> yeah. not very well because they don't quite understand it at times. They have, have blips and you know in the commemorations and all that sort of thing. But uh, I think that they, they never really understood it. They just took it over because they knew it worked.
1: So, what could have been done to make SDLP more relevant today, and what? Part, could you have played in that?
0: Well, I think I had come to a stage where I was... uh, My husband had retired, and I was... He was, what, older than me, and I I was never at home, and I just felt I had to give some time to my family and to him before he went, and uh, I just retired. I, I don't think there was an awful lot that I could have... Maybe, I don't know what could have been done... The leadership on the whole was kind of, well, people were saying, you know, they're all, you're all old, you know, they're all old, they're all past it, you know, Hume and Farron and Rogers and all these ones and Mallon and whoever, that there was a new breed coming up, you know, and they had the wind behind their back, you know, they were, they had actually taken over all our policies and everything, but they didn't have a strategy. Hume had a strategy. They didn't really have a strategy. They had a strategy for themselves, but not for the people, you know. They had a strategy to, as, what do you call them, take power in Ireland with the ballot box in one hand and the Harmanite in the other. I mean, that was their aim. Mm -hmm. And to an extent, they may have achieved it, but was it for the people or was it for them? I don't know.
1: I remember whenever Sinn Féin became the, the biggest nationalist party and um, my friend told me he voted for Sinn Féin mm. and I said, how on earth did you mm. do that? And he says, because it keeps him at the table and away from the guns.
0: Yeah, well, that's what that was it. That's what they did. I remember canvassing. The first whiff I got of our slippage in the vote was I was canvassing uh, in a very nationalist uh, area and quite a few people were saying oh, you know, the women would say, the wife in the house would say, oh I vote STLP but you know your man, he says he's saying now, oh, you know, that shouldn't need to be supported because, you know, to keep them at the table. We were getting that, that's the message they were giving and I know that in Derry they were giving the message, you know we know, you know, you support the human, the STLP and that's fine, you know they're all right. They're going. To, don't worry about them. They're all right. But we do need to have the support of the people. Otherwise, you know, the hawks will take over, and that was that worked for them. And I know uh, the daughter of a very good friend of mine, who worked for the SDLP all her life, and her daughter, her family, they were all SDLP. And now she she was very well educated, and she worked in a very she's very good job, and very well educated, and all that. And she said to me one day, was Shabre Ibo champ Fein. I was shocked to my core. I said, "I don't believe you. well, she said, "You know, they're the strongest block, and you know we have to have someone that's going to stand up to the you know that told me a lot. I mean, they had put themselves in a position where people saw them as they were they they were going to deliver mm. And I, it was very difficult. Well, the other thing is that, that we hadn't built up uh, um, a second tier leadership, hadn't been built up, you know, and that was a fault, I suppose, of the SDLP in many ways, because we had such strong leaders and they were the party. And then there were, weren't people coming up behind, you know, uh, to take over. And I suppose we, I, I would say that the SJP was shell shocked by what happened. Really, you know, to be suddenly find yourself being overtaken, overwhelmed like this wave coming at you. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It would have been. It was. We needed. We needed a new young leader to come forward, but it didn't happen.
1: But I think, in fairness, a lot of it could have been down to the circumstances.
0: It was. The circumstances were very difficult. I would have, I wouldn't have taken, I would never have got it if I ran for it. I wouldn't have dreamt. I knew Mark was, it was Mark was going to be the leader and that was that. And somebody came to me once and said, you're the best leader we never had. Well, I said, I don't know about that. I wouldn't have Mark's intellect or his grasp of all the, you know, all the stuff that goes on in the political sphere. I wouldn't, but you know, I remember when I became a minister saying to Berna MacGyver, was a great friend of mine, she was John's agent. I said to Berna, you know, I'm t- I know nothing. I have never been in opposition. We've never been in anything. I says, how oh am I going to... She said, she was the chair of the Western Education Board. Breed, she said, you will have lots of civil servants around you and you have the party and you will get advice. They know what's happening. They will give you options and you then decide... What options to take? And th- th- she was right. You know, when you have a whole team of people behind you, you know, you're actually, in fact, y- You do ha- there are certain things that I had to make a decision. I remember making a decision <laughs> one time. <laughs> the farming, the farmers always got the milk quota divided. When there was milk quota left over at the end of the year, it was divided between the farmers. And it was pro-rata, so the big farmers got more and the smaller farmers got less. And Pat Toll, who was dealing with it, (laughs) came to me and he said, uh, he was Catholic from South Armagh, he said, you know, there's a few options, he said. You can do it as it was always done. If you like, he said, you can, you know, you can make sure that the smaller farmers get more, you know, than they would normally get whatever way it was worked out. Well, I said, do that. (laughs) Farmers' union went berserk, but they had to put up with it. (laughs) My Colette, Tom's wife, Colette, father was a farmer and he was delighted he was able they were able to sell their milk quota on you see then for the mid money out of it but anyway but you you could make decisions but you couldn't you couldn't know everything in agriculture should I knew nothing about agriculture you know anyway what'd you learn
1: talk to me a little bit about your role as minister for agricultural and rural affairs.
0: Well, it was very satisfying because when I was Minister of Agriculture, it was the first time in my life that I realised that I was in a position to help people. And the agricultural industry in Northern Ireland was very important, uh, but it was dominated by the Ulster Unionists, uh, the, the Ulster Farmers Union. And uh, I knew that they would have been very anti me because of my role in Drum Cree so I had to win them over and my first outing was I think I wasn't a wet weekend there when they had a big demonstration to Stormont, the Ulster Farmers Union because what they wanted to do and of course because I was a regional minister it was the minister in the Westminster, Brown, he was the one who made, who, who went to the council meetings and everything. And Scottish and Welsh, we were peripheral. But anyway, they had a big demonstration, huge demonstration outside Stormont. And they sent, we had, my civil servants had advised me that I would meet with a delegation from the union. And the word came in that they didn't want to meet with delegation, they wanted me out to speak to them. And I said to Peter Small, who is my permanent secretary, I said, that's okay, Peter, I'll go out. I could see his face dropping. I thought, oh, what is she going to say? So I said, OK, I'll go out. I'll be all right. I said, don't worry. So I went out and I made a speech to them. And I got huge applause and they were delighted with it. (laughs) I just said, look, I'm on your side. Uh the British minister is in charge, but I know what are, what your wants are in Northern Ireland and I'm going to fight for that. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to fight for the Northern Ireland industry uh, and I, I'll do my best to work with the British, with, with Brown was his name. And, you know, I told them I was going to work for them and I know what way I said it, but obviously went down well, so they were delighted. And after that, I got on quite well with them and the day I went into my department, um, the woman at the desk who was, well, middle-aged, she was older than me, no, about my age maybe, she kind of turned around. She didn't look at me as I went in through the hall. You know, she didn't welcome me or anything, and I went upstairs to my office. That was my first day in. And the day I was leaving, she shook hands with me and said she was sorry I was gone. <laughs> so it was a case of, John Hume said, when we begin to work together, we will recognise that our our common interest outweighs our differences. And that's what was happening on the ground. We were tilling the ground together. That's what I saw in 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 the department. Because their the interest of the farming community was to maintain their you know, their industry, to look after their industry. And it was it it was it diverged from the interest in Britain. British were particularly the Labour government. They were much more interested in the environment and not so much in the farmers. And the, the farming wasn't a big issue. They're more industrial, so farming wasn't a big issue in Britain, and the way it was in Northern Ireland. And that's why we needed different views. For instance, when the BSE crisis hit. Northern Ireland had very little had was really not bad, but Mayhew was the Secretary of State at the time, and he insisted on. Brooke was the guy. Was I talking to you about Brooke? Anyway, May, Mayhew insisted that the whole of the whole of the UK would come under the ban. They couldn't have a separate one for Northern Ireland, so the whole of the UK was under the ban, and I had begun to work on it with the Commissioner in Brussels, who happened to be an Irishman. <laughs> Uh, what was it, David Byrne, he was the head of that end of the commission to try and get the BSE to get Britain, the ban taken off Northern Ireland because we were making better progress. I was working on that but I didn't get time to finish it. Anyway, when the foot and mouth hit, I was called in that morning at seven o'clock and told that foot and mouth in England and, you know, we'll have to do X, Y, and Z. And the chief vet said to me, you know, we'll have to stop stuff coming across from Britain. So I said, well, go ahead. And then they said, it seems the British government had said, no, couldn't do that. We had to, we couldn't, we couldn't make a law which would stop them coming in Northern Ireland. And the fellow said to me, well, he said, you know, if they continue to send animals across here and food stuff and all that, he said, we'll have it before we know it. So anyway, I said, well, do you know what? I said... Tell them we're going to close them anyway. So we closed the ports. I said, they can take They threatened an injunction. And I said, tell them, you know, it'll tell people a lot about what they think about Northern Ireland Assembly if they're going to tell them what they can do and what they can't do when it's a case of looking after their industry. So we closed the ports. We, t- we turned the ships back <laughs> in the middle of the sea. And they never said another word about it. But, you know, we would have been... We saved Northern Ireland and the South because they were sending sheep across. It transpired then they had actually... Sheep had come across into South Armagh, remember? They had already come across and they would have continued coming across. But anyway, uh, so that actually... That was great because it was having the power in Northern Ireland to do something that was in the interest of the people of Northern Ireland as opposed to the interest of the British was a big thing, and it did make a difference. And we weren't as completely we weren't we never got as bad as England were, you know. And eventually, we were able to get the ban on export of lambs to Europe lifted before the British did, because I went through David burn again, the commissioner, and he said, "Well, I think it could be done, but only if you exclude." Uh, the Newry, Armagh, that whole, you have to exclude that region where where there has been, you know, food and mouth. But all the other regions can be included. So I had to call a meeting of all the representatives, assemblymen from those areas and say, look, we can get the span lifted, but your area and your moan, they'll still be banned. And it's either all dog or no dinner. Mm-hmm. So they agreed that, that would that they wouldn't kick up and that's what happened. So the Northern Ireland uh, lamb exporters were able to export to Europe when the Welsh, the Scottish, no longer were. So that was a bit of a... See, that would not have happened if we were still being ruled by Britain. Mm. And it just meant... It, it meant that you can look after your own people when you have the power to do it.
1: Whenever you look at the current political situation, what goes through your mind?
0: Frustration, more than anything. I think uh, there's a small section of loyalism which is taking a very strong stand against any change or any compromise and telling people that they're losing. They are con- trying to convince their people that when anything that's a good for nationalists is a loss for them, you know, and there, there has to be a leadership that tells them that that is not the case. And I think the unionist leadership, there's there's no leadership, there's no David Trimble now, there's nobody who has the courage to walk, step forward and say, and take a risk with their own political leader, and say, look, this is what... Because what's happening is they're destroying the union themselves. That's what they're doing. And... The problem at the moment is there is no leadership in unionism that's prepared to come out and take... I know, you know, um, Doug Beattie is. He's saying things, but he's not getting the support. So the unionist commune, a strong section of the unionist community is not prepared to support a moderate leader who's prepared to compromise. And Doug Beattie is obviously making the right noises, but he's going down the tubes too. I think it. I think it's a pity. I think uh, inevitably Jeffrey Donaldson is have to. He's going to have to choose that there's going to be direct rule, or he's going to go back into the assembly. And I do think. I have to say this. I think that part of the reason that they're so opposed to going into the assembly is not really the protocol. Some of them don't know what the protocol is. It's because they can't stomach having and having Michelle O'Neill as First Minister. I think that's a big issue for Unionists. To ha- Suddenly, what was their bailiwick all their lives, is suddenly going to be, the dominant person is going to be a nationalist. You know, they just can't take that. So, it's a conundrum. I, I don't know, Jeffrey Donaldson is going to have to. He's very he's very aware of the dangers for himself. I think he wants to move. He knows he has to move, that he has no option, but he doesn't want to risk it.
1: Where do you see Northern Ireland in 30 to 40 years now?
0: Oh, I see it completely. I, I see Northern Ireland changing, form, changing gradually from civil rights through Good Friday Agreement, through... Uh, even the growth of the Alliance Party who will have to put their money where their mouth is eventually.
1: In terms of what?
0: Well, you can't be not for a thing. And, you know, if it comes to a constitutional change, it's a huge thing. So you have to have a view on it. Mm -hmm. You can't say, well, our people have different views on it. You know, you have to be, you have to stand up for what you think should happen. You know, I think that there come a time when they're going to have to put, you know, they can't be all things to all people but um you know there's obviously a section of the northern ireland community now who don't support unionist parties and they're the ones that are supporting the alliance and um i think i think things will change but it's hard to see i think there is there is going to be change has been happening now for the last decades and there's going to be more change happening And I think eventually there will be a New Ireland. But when it comes, I don't know. But there will be. There will be. Because, you see, Northern Ireland was built for unionists to keep the place unionist and to keep them safe in their own area and to keep them safe from this awful southern state. And as long as they were running it, that was going to happen. But that's no longer the case. So something is going to have to change. It's, they're no longer dominate Northern Ireland as they used to. They can't. They don't feel that they can call. They can't call the shots any longer, and they're depending on a British government who has, time and again, let them down, stabbed them in the back, stabbed them in the front. They know. They know they can't depend. They're saying that. Donaldson has said it. Even Jimmy Bryson has said it. They can't depend on the British, so they're going to have to stand on their own two feet and decide what do they want to do? Where do they want to be?
1: So do you see the unionist community moving in behind Doug Beatty, or do you no, see...
0: No, I can't see that because... it's. I, I can't... See, I I have difficulty putting myself in. I know what they're afraid of. They're afraid that they have lost everything they ever had. They owned the house, and now the house is taken from them. That's the way it is you know they own the whole mansion and suddenly the mansion's gone and they're just lost and they don't want to start sharing the mansion with other people because then they'll they'll lose more you know it it's it's a conundrum i don't know if it's i don't know i i, I just despair sometimes but The only thing is I don't think there's going I don't think people are going to go back to to war I think that was John Hume the peace process and John Hume's big achievement I don't think there's going to be any stomach at all ever for going back to war because people see the futility of it over three and a half, nearly 4,000 people dead for what? For what? For a united Ireland? To get the Brits out? Didn't do either you know
1: we opened this conversation where you stated your age. You're 88. Yeah. Your eyes, invariably, I, I trust like my father's, they drift towards the exits from time to time yeah, and, and yeah. you ponder upon your yeah, your, your, yeah. your life. How would you like to be remembered?
0: I don't think I'd be remembered very well anyway. I'd, I'd, I'd just like to be remembered as as, as a woman who came into Northern Ireland and saw a mess and felt something needed to be done about it and did my best over a number of decades to try and change things and to support people like John Hume and be part of the movement for change. And I hope people will see that I did my best over the years to try and change lives for people. In particular, in Northern Ireland, but in Ireland as a whole.
1: Breach, whenever you are talking earlier about, you know, that outburst of emotion um, in your home in Guidor, um, I was getting emotional, mm. and I'm sure other people are listening mm. to this of thinking, you know, uh, you know, having some form of uh, stirrings within themselves. Also, we have a lot to be thankful for for the last 25 years and you've played an essential part of that Mm. and on behalf of me and all my friends, I want to say thank you. I'm sure I'm speaking for a lot of people I've never yet met but who are enjoying the world of peace in Northern Ireland.
0: Well thank you for that but I also think, I often think of all of the people who marched for civil rights, who joined the SDLP who worked for the STLP over the years in very difficult circumstances where they were being barracked by Unionists on one side and by Republicans on the other side as being traitors. And all those ordinary people in Northern Ireland, people like your father and your uncle and other people in my own community, who stood with the STLP over all those years and were sort of looked down on as the stoop down low party. I always think that those people deserve credit that they never got.
1: Here, here, <laughs> and sure, <Shaw> and sure. <laughs> this has been a social Media original podcast and production.